The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew from the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. The Gospel reading this morning is from St. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, and can be found in the Pew Bible on page 1500. Matthew 4, 12 through 25. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat and with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And news about him spread all over Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, and those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them all. Large crowds from Galilee the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the name of Jesus. I have a telephone. Ah, the telephone. Where would we be without it? I, I'm going to take a picture here. Smile and wave. There you go. On this side. Everyone's sitting over there on the right. You know, you, anyone here remember when telephones were just for making calls? I don't know how we would get along without it. 
It's so important to us in everyday life. We use it to stay in touch with friends and with loved ones. We use it to make appointments, may even use it to order a pizza. Today's phones are amazing. Most cell phones will do much more than just make a phone call. As you know, some will let you uh, send a text and messages and email. Some will let you take a picture and send it to a friend. And one important feature of today's phones is that a friend can call and leave a message. And when that happens, your phone lets you know by saying, you have a message. And one thing that bugs many people is when a, they've called a friend and they leave a message and that friend never returns the call. What is up with that? You and I have a friend who left a message. He invited us to go fishing with him. There's another topic. Anyone like to fish? Yeah? They call it fishing, not catching, I found out at a very early age. I love to go fishing. I really do. I, I should need to get out there soon. So I wonder about the friend I just referred to that, can you guess who that friend is that uh, has invited us and, and has left us a message? It's Jesus, right? He, uh, he left us a message and he wants us to go fishing with him. The fishing trip is going to be quite different though. Instead of going out to a stream somewhere, catching fish, he has invited us to go and fish for people. He didn't leave this message on the phone, of course. He left this message in our Holy Bible and in our gospel message today. As we know that one day Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and Andrew, and um, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and throwing a net into the water uh, because that's where they fished for a living. Jesus called to him, Come and follow me. And the amazing thing is, is that they dropped what they were doing immediately and they followed him. Remarkable. And as Jesus and Peter and Andrew walked along the shore, they saw two other brothers, James and John, and they were sitting in their boat, uh, mending their nets with their dad. And, and Jesus called to them and invited them to come along. And miraculously, amazing, they dropped what they were doing and said, Later, Dad, and, and they went with Jesus. They left their father and their boats behind. If you've ever been fishing, you know that there is a thrill to landing the big one. Am I right? You catch the big one? Can you imagine what the thrill it is uh, that comes for fishing for people and, and you help somebody to come to know Jesus because of you? Telling them what and who Jesus is. So, even though this is a story about Jesus calling the first disciples in, the, in our scripture today, it is for us too. It is a message from Jesus that he wants us to go and make disciples. And that's a call that we need to return. 
That's a call that we need to answer, and our answer ought to be, yes, Lord, I will. Earlier this week, there was a day in which Timothy was uh, the topic in uh, the Daily Bread, and our men's group yesterday uh, went through this in our Bible study at 8 o'clock every Saturday morning in pastor's office. All are invited. And Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. So what are the duties of your pastor? Jesus was calling before. Those were apostles, pastors, teachers. They were fishing for men. What are the duties of your pastor? Well, I'm going to tell you. First and foremost, your pastor is called to preach Christ and him crucified. That is what my job is, to preach Christ and him crucified to this congregation and to administer the sacraments to this congregation, rightly, properly, regularly. Now, some people may say, surely you don't mean that a pastor should be evangelizing believers in the pulpit. Is that what you're saying, pastor? You just got done talking about fishing. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. That is exactly what I'm saying. Most evangelicals have no category for preaching to preaching Christ to a congregation of believers. Their only category that evangelicals have is for preaching the gospel is that it is for the evangelizing of pagans, for going outside and getting more and more and more. That's, that's what they do and that's what they focus on. Both are important. Not one is more important than the other. Preaching to Christians, very important. We think of Paul's admonition to Timothy, laying the foundation that there is also the ordinary ministry. We think of today's gospel laying a foundation of going out and finding people. But there is an ordinary ministry that is preaching the gospel and administering the sacraments to a congregation of the already converted. That's you. I've noticed that some pastors overlook the congregation in order to reach out to the pagan world and, and gather in this harvest. I've noticed that it looked like they were looking right over the congregants' heads. I was in that. Where they're looking over my head. Fellow pastors saying, looking over the heads. To, they forget the gotten to find those that are lost outside. I call this the neglect of the gotten, the forgotten gotten. So let's think for a moment of why is it important that your pastor, any pastor, preach Christ and Him crucified to his congregation 
week after week. Why is that important? Well, let's take for a moment the inner soliloquy that many Christians experience week by week. What goes on in many Christians' hearts and their minds during the week? That voice that accuses. They may think that there may have been grace for me when, as a sinner, I was initially converted, but now, but now, having been given the Spirit of God, I fear that things have gotten worse in me rather than better. That voice may say, I have horribly abused all of God's good gifts to me. That voice may say, I was so optimistic in the beginning when the pastor told me that Christ outside of me, Christ outside of me, dying for me, freely saved me by his death, and that the Holy Spirit now dwelling within me would aid me in following Christ. And I look forward to that so much but it's all gone badly. I'm sure as I look around to my left and my right, others have no doubt done what God equipped them to do, but I have not. That voice may accuse I have used grace and Christ's shed blood as an excuse for doing things I probably wouldn't even have done as a pagan. I have rededicated myself to Christ more times than I can count. But it seems to get even worse. Whatever the outer limits of Christ's grace are, surely I have gone beyond. That voice of inner reflection says, I guess, I was never a Christian in the first place because if I had been, I would have made some progress. I would have made some progress in the Christian life. Maybe I was never part of the elect. The accuser whispers. The accuser says, anyway, Maybe I'm beyond hope. In exhaustion, and that person might say, I'll try going to church a while longer. But I think I've tried every possible thing that the church has told me to do. And after that, I guess... I'll return to paganism and I'll just eat and drink and be merry. So how does your pastor do Christ alone to that person, to that man, to that woman, to that child? How does your pastor inoculate, comfort that person? What do I say? Because that man is broken. 
Well, your pastor recognizes that the law has been done. He sees what the law has done and is doing to this person. The pastor realizes that what is needed in this case is not the law, but the gospel. And one of the problems with some churches in this country is the common conviction that genuine conversion always shows itself in a measurable moral progress. In other words, that a lack of such progress is evidence that no true regeneration has taken a place. That's a bunch of sin-sniffing, fruit-inspecting baloney. And I won't have it in here. And you don't do it. That breaks this pastor's heart. The still, the still sinning believe, or is led to believe, that he is not now, nor ever has been, a Christian. But because of what he has done or not done or failed at, he missed the mark and he's not in the book of life. That's, my friends, how the church breaks people. This is an example of broken by, this, by the church, and it should not be. And this pastor in this pulpit looks for symptoms like that. And I try to head him off. And I assure you, week after week, of his grace for you. Now, Luther recognized that the deadliness of this kind of theology, that is when we seek assurance from within ourselves, that we find no assurance at all. When we look for assurance inside ourselves, what we hear is that voice saying, you never were, you'll never be, you're not. All these negative things. But Luther realized and he proclaimed that the death and resurrection of Christ in our stead, you're shouting, Pastor, I mean it. The death and resurrection of Christ in our stead was enough to save even a Christian. So this pastor's calling is to present Christ alone against the false counsel of man's inner intuition. This pastor's calling is to call out fruit inspectors and sin sniffers and get them back on track. This pastor, week after week, presents the biblical promises concerning the sufficiency of Christ's death as sufficient to save even a morally guilty Christian. Now let me take a moment here to not pat myself on the back lest I break my elbow. Paul's letter to Timothy begs the question of this. Are pastors held to a higher standard than others? Your head should be doing this, yeah. Yes. In some senses, yes. But pastors are sinners too, in need of a Savior. 
And St. Paul writes to Timothy that pastors should have those qualifications listed above. Some people use this list as a checklist by which they can get rid of a pastor if he falls at one or more of them. Does following in, falling in any of these areas disqualify a pastor from being a pastor? Perhaps. Perhaps. The Lord establishes these qualifications for the office of the holy ministry. Why? So that we can have pastors who care for us in Christ. The Lord desires that a pastor faithfully preach and teach his word so that we sinners are saved. Anything that gets in the way of that is bad. You can think of it this way. For the pastor, these things are the law by which he must examine himself, by which he must learn to repent of his sins. But for you, they are good news. That the Lord gives you a pastor who is faithful and committed to the work that the Lord has given him. So what if your pastor messes up? What if he forgets to visit someone in the hospital? Or blows off a question you thought that was very important and didn't get back to you? What do you do? Will you... uh, You give your pastor what he gives you, forgiveness. And after all, it is his job to deliver deliver Jesus who died and rose to rescue us from our sins. Your pastor baptized you. Your pastor absolves you and gives you Jesus' body and blood. And with that forgiveness that he has passed on to you, pass it back to him so that he may, with a clear conscience, continue to do the work the Lord has given him to do for your blessing. As he is one, as he is the one that Jesus has chosen to give to you. And he's the one that Jesus has given you to give you Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen.